0: I am teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. Hey, Gabe. Gabe, want to take you to the nursery? That'd be great. Thank you. And with that a bit of business finished, uh, so we did it in a weird order, but we kind of finished uh, the ending of John last week. So uh, in the series on love, we kind of talked about the conversation with Peter. As you remember, Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, I philo you. Um, Then we talked a little bit about Thomas and the kind of place of belief, and I think the basic conclusion of that was that Jesus comes to us in love and makes the very being of God the Father apparent to us, that Thomas is a a worthwhile way to end the gospel because it's about someone seeing God the Father as manifest in the person of Jesus. And so... You know, next uh, next week, uh, Trace starts up. You all get a break from months of me. And uh, I was trying to think about the best and kind of last piece I wanted to tie together the stuff on the resurrection and the stuff on love. And so I wanted to look at, um, I don't know, the ending of another gospel and see if some of those same themes are present. So Matthew 28. Uh, so we finished what I guess was the first ending of John last week. And um, the uh, gospel of... Uh, John ends with a kind of version of Jesus's ascension and with Jesus kind of charging the disciples to go into the world and to embrace the character of God and uh, to, I don't know, see the mission that's laid out before them. Um, Matthew kind of contains a a similar ending and it was really interesting to me that it also um, focuses on the question of doubt. It focuses on the question of how we respond to the presence of the living Christ and what it causes us to do or what we ought to do in moving forward into the world and kind of advancing the goals of the kingdom. It's less explicit in Matthew than it is in John, but um, you know, the interesting thing for Matt, this uh, little section in Matthew 28 is it sets up uh, the relationship not between doubt and disbelief but between doubt and worship. So. Uh, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, what's really interesting about the presentation of doubt here in Matthew, and you know the fact that it's kind of the tee up to the work of the Great Commission, is that the word for doubt here is not like the word that John uses to talk about Thomas's doubt. So the word John uses to talk about Thomas's doubt is like a, what, apistist, uh, not having uh, appropriate pistos or belief in something. And the point of the stuff last week was that, you know, do we say that Thomas sees Jesus and therefore he believes, or that, Jesus, uh, that Thomas is able to believe because he sees the character of God as manifest in Jesus without it not necessarily being about the presentation of evidence? And there, the question in John is kind of like, I don't know, that at least as we frame it in the evangelical tradition, it's are my beliefs strong enough to kind of overcome the things that I don't see? I think that reading of John was about saying that it's not just about the kind of strength of your belief, but about the idea that God the Father comes to us in the person of Jesus in the incarnation. So, you know, Thomas's doubt, though, we've always kind of thought about in relationship to evidence. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, the doubt word here is different. And the question of doubt as it's presented here at the kind of end of the story is not necessarily the same kind of doubt that's about, I don't know if I fully believe in something. I don't know if all the evidence supports it. So the doubt word here is deistazo, not uh, So apistis is doubt in John. The doubt word here is deistazo. And you know both of those words, uh, or at least hopefully you remember you know both of those words, even if you don't know that you know them, so die is the same as like diametric, diameter, diatomic, dichotomy, divide. It's like a cut word. It means to separate something into two. And the stazo part is a word that we've talked about before. That word is stasis. And it kind of translates as stuff. Like what is, you know, divided stuff, I guess, is what this version of doubt is. But it's uh it's, it has this like awesome history behind it where Stasis was actually not initially about stuff. Know, Dan, weren't you a wrestler? Anybody else a wrestler? Or if not, you wrestled with your siblings or whatever? So stasis originally was the word for if you're kind of locked in a wrestling match with someone and you're both kind of leaning in, and all of a sudden you kind of see a tipping point or a balance point where if you shift your weight, you can kind of win the match. That, that That was the original idea about stasis. Stasis was... Kind of a position or a leaning into something and so it describes not only you know the way it got used later is like stasis is the turning point of an argument or the stuff that an argument is about and then it turned into stuff more generically but here dystazo is not like disbelief the disciples are not sure if they think the evidence is credible for jesus the greek word here basically says something like they were divided about what they thought was going on they had differing understandings of what it meant to see and to worship Jesus. That's less a word about the kind of credibility or integrity or justifiability of belief and more a word that I think squares more with my experience and I imagine with yours that the concrete moments that you might call doubt are not is the evidence sufficient, but that you feel divided. You feel like it's difficult to say how exactly you'll respond to and and, and move forward in and, uh, uh, you know, uh, what you do in, in response to encountering God, encountering the person of Jesus. Now that's really interesting to me because we've already kind of been cued to the fact that the disciples are both worshiping and doubting. They are venerating the presence of the risen Lord. They are giving themselves over to uh, kind of recognizing the beauty and the the miracle of it. And they don't doubt in the sense of thinking that they're not quite sure if Jesus is resurrected, but they're divided on what to do. They don't exactly know what it means for them. They don't exactly know what it means to not only throw yourself into worship, but to do the things that God calls you to do, which makes sense because that's the tee up to the Great Commission. But I think there's something that we don't talk about a lot when we talk about the Great Commission, which is that it sees then the act of worship as continuous with and the precursor for the stuff that we're supposed to do in the world. A lot of times we think about worship as something we kind of do in here on Sunday, and then there's a series of moral obligations that we have to fulfill if we're going to fulfill God's law. But at least as, as understood in the Gospel of Matthew, the basic problem is we see the presence of Jesus, we find ourselves worshiping and venerating and encountering the beauty of Jesus, and then we're kind of presented with a choice. And that choice is not do we believe or not believe, but rather, do we make our worship meaningful by moving it out into the world and doing the stuff that God calls us to do? Jesus' death and resurrection and his ascension are all kind of a, I don't know, continuous act that points towards the character of our glorified God, and it presents us with a choice. I think that's the thing. We We can observe the glory of God, we can sing about the glory of God, we can worship the glory of God. But it's not enough to just kind of exercise the act of worship. We can, I don't know, experience it here and basically be unaffected by it, or the divided stuff, the choice the disciples had to make, make here at the Ascension is presented in Matthew, is do we take what we do in worship, do we take our experience and understanding of the person of Jesus, and does it move us out into the world in a way that fulfills the Great Commission? I don't know, I grew up in a tradition where basically the Great Commission was almost like a little bit of a threat, or like you know, you had to go out and do the things that God called you to do because there were souls that might not get saved if you didn't do it exactly right, and the Great Commission had this feel of a kind of burden or an obligation, but that's not the way it's presented here in Matthew. The way it's presented here in Matthew is it recognizes that to be a human being is to be divided about what to do in the face of our experiences of God, and it recognizes that those things move us and it asks as the solution for us to take worship and to turn it into something broader and equally continuous as the act of Jesus dying, resurrecting, and ascending. We're called to be remade in the process of worship so that we can remake the world. I don't want to denigrate the idea of worship by saying that. I don't want to say that, you know, it's wrong for us to come here today, obviously, and worship and enjoy it and uh, signal our thankfulness to God. Worship is a command in the Hebrew canon and in in the canon of, of, of the New Testament. But the point is, Jesus sees that the disciples are at this kind of choice point, this divided stasis point between worship in the presence of of god and and doubt about what to do division about what to do the interesting thing is verse 18 starts out with it's a fairly kind of characteristic uh greek move and most folks have it translated as then i imagine so then jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me but that then in greek usually has a kind of sense of like a little bit of a therefore uh, the idea that worship is continuous with and ought to cause us to move through the world and to respond to uh, the ways God has been made to us, present to us, Jesus comes to them and says that the implication of it is that, I, do most folks have it translated this way, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me? It's uh, 18. All right. The word for authority is kind of a baller Greek word. It's, uh, th- that word is exousia. So like our word for authority, if we think about authority, I don't know, I think about the DMV or something. You know, authority is tied in our tradition to the idea of authorship. Like who is the one who writes the law? Who is the one that makes the law binding? And if you're the person who makes up the law, uh, I don't know, the law is a representation of the will of the sovereign and you have to follow it. The Greek word that they translate as authority here has nothing to do with that idea of authorship or producing the law or being empowered to create a rule or regulation. It's a totally different word. It's one of those places where folks tend to kind of uh, translate it in ways that fit with our good old fashioned evangelical instincts, but maybe totally and completely wrong in understanding exactly what Jesus is saying here. The word exousia, ek is like out of. Anybody, ouzia? Being. Exousia is to be out of or to emanate from one's being. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying more than like, you know, God the Father sent me on an errand. I've been granted jurisdiction over heaven and earth, and so I get to say what happens. Instead, he is saying something like there, that it is a kind of emanation from or the character of his being, that his essence and the expression of his person is that all things on heaven and earth in the entirety of the cosmos are given to him, that it is his nature to be given to him. And it you know, it's a kind of beautiful way of doing the thing that the first part of John does in maybe opposite direction. It's a way of saying that in the beginning was the word and that all of creation and the entirety of the cosmos has been given to the very being of Jesus. It's a vision of the incarnation that's a lot about a lot more than, I don't know, God wearing a human suit. That's that all of reality has not only been turned over to Jesus in terms of authority, but that Jesus becomes something like the principle towards which all being leans and upon which all being is grounded it's a way of saying that the character of jesus is that jesus is creator and point and purpose and means of manifesting the cosmos matthew's formulation is way more radical than just jesus god the father has given jesus an errand or jurisdiction over heaven and earth to kind of figure out what goes on it's about saying that jesus is the core and center of everything that finally what we recognize that everything flows out of and flows towards him. And I mean, to me, that's an amazing formulation of the idea of the incarnation. It's hard to think about, but like the idea is that Jesus is the foundation for all existence because the foundation for all existence is given to the Son by the Father. And in turn, the character of the Father rises out of, emanates from, and is manifest in the character of the Son. It's a, I don't know, beautiful way of thinking about the idea that is a big deal and much more explicit in John, and it's sort of similar to John's, but it's not just that Jesus has kind of been given charge over the problem of the law or over what to tell us people to do. It's that Jesus becomes the source and fount of all existence, and it gives us a new way for thinking about what it means to even exist in the universe. That we don't exist, that we don't live, we don't move, we don't breathe, we don't do any of that without Christ being our foundation, without Christ being the purpose, and Christ being the goal. And it really changes, I think, how you think about verse 19. So verse 19, remember that? Anybody remember the Greek word for something that is both foundation, means, and goal? Telos. Telephone. Sound between two, you know, whatever. Verse 19 says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the holy spirit. Now when we think about nations, we typically think about nation states and governments and territories and stuff. But as the folks in this time thought about nations, they would have thought about the whole kind of constellation of a people who believed in the god who had a story about the universe, who understood their purpose by that story, etc., etc., etc. Like nation was about a lot more than territory or even identity. When Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations," he's not just saying that we ought to talk, target all kinds of different people. He's saying the message ought to be brought to every person who has a story or a vision or an understanding of where the universe is supposed to go, and specifically do it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now folks often reject the idea that the Trinity is like directly in the gospel, but I think it's about as close as you can get. Like here it suggests the idea that Jesus is the foundation of all being and simultaneously able to invoke and not only invoke in but act in and for the purposes of the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit the ending to matthew i think is beautiful on this that we can't understand not only the act of worship but the act of what we're supposed to do how we're supposed to solve the 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 challenge that's given to us in the great commission simply by saying there's a set of tasks that have been laid out to us that i think the gospel of matthew asks us to think about the character of the universe differently think about the character of existence differently and think about what it means to live in a world where Jesus is the telos, the endpoint, the foundation, the, uh, the, the manifest glory of the Trinitarian God. You can pile all kinds of beautiful theological concepts on it, but if you think about it, that way that all being has been given to jesus it's not just a question of command or authority but rather that what happens in the death resurrection and ascension is a revelation of the fact that there is no existence outside of the person of jesus and that everything exists exists in and through the incarnation of god well all of a sudden verse 20 looks totally different so what is what most of y'all have for verse 20 teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, which kind of sounds a lot like the idea that God sends Jesus on an errand, and the errand is to kind of set the rules for the world, and our job is to obey Jesus as God's representative, yada, yada, yada. But that's right, but only sort of. The basis for the Great Commission is not just a command for us to do what God tells us to do on behalf of Jesus. There's a perfect, the word here is not command at all. There's a perfectly good word that means obey in the sense of not going against a command. This word is not that word. The word here that is translated as obey is, I don't know, guard, taros. It's like the word for a military guard who exercises authority over and protects the boundaries of a territory. And Jesus is not just asking us to obey, but like to guard and shepherd and steward. And the word that gets translated in The most New Testaments is we're asked to obey and shepherd and steward commands, but the word does not mean command. This is beautiful. The word is entelemi. And and entelemi has got that telos word in it. I don't want to hammer dime store Greek into your ears all day, but telos does mean foundation and an outcome. Entelemi, the thing we're being asked to guard, is not just a command, but we're being asked to guard and shepherd and steward the idea that Jesus is the endpoint, the telos, the foundation of the universe, the means through which it exists, and the thing towards which it aims. It's not about following a directive, I don't think. I mean, that's part of it, but it doesn't even kind of get in the ballpark of order. Maybe like the best way of thinking about Entillamite is to say it's something like the purpose or consummation of an order. It's like the same word, like we use the word directive sometimes, right? And directive means there's a place where you're supposed to go and a thing that you're supposed to get to. But the Great Commission here, I don't think, is just about obeying the law or doing what we're told. It's not about following a rule or a formula. It's about seeing the presence of the triune God in the person of Jesus and guarding or shepherding or stewarding or forwarding it so that all nations, folks in every story and in every context, can understand the point of or the way through which all stories ultimately lead an end. Teaching them to obey, to guard everything I have commanded to you, the final purposes towards which I have put you. It's only when I think you see that sense of Jesus as the telos, as the, as the foundation, as the means, and as the purpose of the universe, that we can really understand why the Great Commission is more than just a set of instructions or a series of demands or I don't know, just like the reason why the point here is ultimately not about belief or non-belief, but what you do if you want to move from worship to deciding how to act and to how to be in the world, how you get beyond being divided. The point that Matthew is making here and the point that Jesus is making here is something like the focus ought not really be the law, the focus ought not even really be the instructions, the focus ought be for us to guard the idea that we abide with Christ because God is incarnate in the person of Jesus and therefore the whole of the cosmos has been made holy in some ways. To see a vision of a God who is bigger and grander than we can possibly imagine, not just because that God is beyond us or that we can't really always fully propositionally justify that God or that it escapes language or whatever the thing is, but to understand that there is nothing that does not exist, there is no point, no purpose, no place, no means, no foundation, nothing that is not bound up in the Incarnation as an expression of God the Father is made manifest in the Son. The end, the telos, the completion, The consummation, the alpha and the omega, the beginning, the end, the way, the truth, the life, the totality of everything. The final part of verse 20, then, I am with you always till the end of the age. I don't know, It always struck me as like Jesus is saying, like if I was leaving the kids on a trip, hey, buck up, buddy, I'll be back. I'm always with you. I'm always there. And of course, there is a sense of kind of comfort in it until the second coming. But even the Greek on that is really crazy. He is essentially saying that that we will abide in the person of Jesus, that we will sit on that firm foundation, that we will be animated by and move through that goal, and we will see Jesus as the end point. And it's not just like the end of time is a weird translation of it because the word there is entelemise. It's not just like a stopping point in time. It's a description of the new character of the universe where God not only returns at some point in time, where God not only comes at some specific point in time, but where we understand the entirety of the universe to be a manifestation of and to be made holy in the incarnation, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ to have a vision of the power of God which is more than command, to have a vision of the power of God which is more than just what we might believe or not believe, but a power of God from which the very principle of being emanates and it's our job to worship and then to respond by being undivided, by leaning in to who Jesus is and the character of Christ. Surely I am with you until the end of the age is more than just a statement about the character of time, it's a statement about a new creation. And here as as in John you know, it doesn't really, Matthew doesn't really get the same kind of theological rap as, as John does, but Jesus is not just kind of offering a salutation and not just an injunction and not just a goodbye. He is sending us out into the world with a new formula for what it means to exist in the cosmos, to worship, to baptize, to teach, and all those things. The point is not simply that we need to execute those functions. The point is that we live differently because we see the abiding character of the Trinity and in the incarnate Christ. Therefore, I'm with you until the end of the age is not just a statement about what happens when time runs out. It's a statement about the person of Jesus. And not to get too nerdy on this, but I don't know, think about a question that we get asked all the time when we ask about the question of belief. Does God exist? Classic question, does God exist? If you see what is being said in the Great Commission here, the question of whether or not God exists utterly and completely misses the point. The point of this is to say that there is no existence outside of the character of God. That existence is not like some quality or attribute that we might attach to God, like I might attach to a cell phone or to a podium or to anything else. Existence is not just something that's just kind of added in and makes things present to us. The point here is that even the idea of existence is premised on the person of Jesus Christ. To ask the question of whether or not God exists is an awfully different, difficult question if there's no existence outside of the person of God. And that's not just a nerdy philosophical point. That's a point that should cause us to think differently about the question of belief. We don't need to rack up the evidence to see if the explanation's right. We simply need to respond to the character of a God without whom nothing could exist and in whom everything exists and for whom everything will eventually be fully perfected and consummated and made right so our job is not to double down and believe with all that we can and find the right arguments to support it instead our job is simply to worship to recognize and to see and exist and to feel and to i don't know respond to the fact that jesus has born been died died and resurrected and therefore makes the cosmos right The choice here is not between belief or unbelief. The choice here is between worship or internal division. The choice here is not between getting the arguments right and figuring out what we're supposed to do, but rather to be open to and to love and to respond to and to find yourself in the face of the mystery of Jesus Christ, undivided and directed towards the purposes that he sets us towards. And I don't know if I think a lot when I think about my life of faith. There are always questions of belief that are difficult. But I'll say that the questions of internal division to me are much more difficult. And the prescription here is that when we worship, when we find ourselves properly grounded in the foundation that is Jesus, when we understand ourselves to only be able to do whatever it is because, that we do because of the person of Jesus and the means that God has provided us and finally when we find that the end of everything whether it's teaching or baptizing or worship or any of those things is for us to be brought together by him and in him and through him to abide with him and finally to be fully and completely undivided in our worship of him that is the end of the great commission does it mean that we should go out and tell people about Jesus yes of course it does does it mean that we ought to think about the character of the law and what we need to do yes of course it does but in some way the question is wrong Jesus is not the end point. Jesus is not the starting point. Jesus is not the means, Jesus is all of it. And our response to Him ought to be to be undivided in worship so that we can be thrown in the world, into the world, to do what the order of love commands us to do. Amen.